Hi everyone, it's Robbie Lockie here. This is the PBN Podcast. Um, we're really excited to welcome Mr. Fraser Bailey, vegan activist, former butcher, yeah. founder of Evolving Alpha, and personal trainer, and someone who really is just incredibly inspiring when it comes to the vegan bodybuilding scene. Thank you for joining us, Thank Fraser. You, man. I appreciate the time, man. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, before we kick things off yeah. and go into you know your world, uh-huh. like let's go back in time and let's learn a little bit about your journey and how you got to where you are now. So, yeah. how did you, you know, let's let's start with your kind of journey through being a butcher. Mm-hmm. How did you actually get into becoming a butcher? Yeah, it's funny, man, because I was working in a supermarket part-time after school, and um, I just happened to be put into the butchery as a student. Um, it was funny because a lot of the boys got put into butchery and a lot of the girls got put into checkout. So they were in the customer service role. A lot of the guys got put into butchery or deli or seafood. I don't know, it was just the paradigm of male and female. Um, and I really struggled in school, um, you know, with learning disabilities. Um, I was diagnosed with ADHD, um, severe social anxiety and bipolar disorder. And so I thought I was stupid when I was at school, like my grades were terrible. And so I was like, you know what, I'm done with this formal education. I'm gonna go make some money. And I went to the butchering manager and I said, look, you know, I've been on part-time for a while, like, can I just come on full-time? And so I started that full-time, I just fell into it. It wasn't like I looked in the newspaper and was like, there's a butchery opening, I wanna do that. It was like, okay, there's this job I've already got. Now I can go from part-time to full-time and I can make some money, Um, which to me was amazing because I'd never made that money in my life. It wasn't a lot, but it was like compared to where I come from. And um, so I started working there, it's like just like a, a cleanup boy, you know, I was cleaning down the bandsaws and the benches and taking out the trash and kind of, you know, giving meat to customers and all that basic stuff. And they, I guess, appreciated my work ethic um, to some degree because they were like, we want to get you on as an apprentice. And I was like, okay, so what does that entail? Um, and they were like, well, you've got to go through and do these modules but you're gonna get a pay rise as soon as you start. And as soon as I heard pay rise, I'm like, okay, I'll do it. And so that was the start of the journey into butchery as an apprentice. And I went through um, the whole apprenticeship system, which is like in and of itself, like going to college. How long was that? Three years. And um, sorry, maybe two years, two or three, it was so Mm -hmm. long ago, probably two or three years. Mm -hmm. And um, there's different modules and you go through and you have to do this paperwork and you go to, you take trips to slaughterhouses. So you go through the slaughterhouse from the start to the finish and you see the whole system unfold. Um, Slaughterhouses for cows, pigs, and then chickens as well. Mm -hmm. And that happens later on in the apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. So you're sort of deep into it once you see that, Mm -hmm. um, which is very different to the environment that I was working in with the butchery. So in the butchery, we just get the carcasses coming in off the truck, um, looking lifeless, mm. and so you don't see a sort of a live sentient being. And how, and how did it feel working in that environment? How did, do you remember any of your emotions when you first encountered it? All the, you know, a lot of blood, no yeah. doubt. Do you mean in the slaughterhouse? In, or just generally in the, the butchery, entire yeah. environment, the slaughterhouse and the butchery. It, what I found, man, is it was funny because I often ask myself, is it this chicken or the egg concept where did my mental health spiral out of control because I was in Mm -hmm. the butchery or was I 
like or was it the other way around like mm -hmm. what facilitates that because one of the things I noticed was that the type of energy and the type of environment and the type of people mm -hmm. that worked in this environment they all seem to have similar problems mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't just in that one butchery you know like a lot of people will often say well you know how you know I know someone who works in this butchery and they're fine mm -hmm. I worked in a bunch of different ones as contracting and so I would see like a lot of alcoholism mm -hmm. a lot of drug abuse just a lot of general like hyper masculinity mm -hmm. the environment was very very hyper masculine mm -hmm. um, and then you start to question why is 99% of the people that I worked with in, in these butcheries all men you know, the women don't work in there, mm -hmm. just men. And um, I really felt like it was a very heavy, toxic experience. But at the time, dude, like, it's like when you're in the trenches, you don't see it. You know, like when you're in it, it's very hard to see the forest for the trees mm. until you get out of it and you look back and you're like, man, that was super toxic. And what were some of the worst bits about being in that environment for you? Part of it was just the fear of the wolf pack. So like the butchery, the, the, the guys in the butchery, the butchers, it's literally like a wolf pack. And that if you step wrong or you come in as an outsider and you don't vibe with them, you're like, you're ostracized. Mm. You're an outcast. So you f you're always vying for like position. So you're still working there, but they don't talk to you. Yeah. Right. You're, you're vying for position. And I mean, there were times where um, there was physical altercations in the butchery. I got punched in the face wow. working in the butchery, like a full black eye, like for nothing. Wow. Um, and just the guy was just this big guy in a bad mood. Like domination, domineering, kind of Absolute. Cre creating a power structure. Absolute like yeah. power structure and like a hierarchy mm -hmm. of, you could see that the most hyper aggressive mm -hmm. and the, the yeah. butchers who um, were the most skilled tended to be at the top. Mm -hmm. And then there was like a pecking order and it was this constant fight in this pecking order. So dude, there was times where my alarm would go off in the morning at 4 a.m. Mm. and I would literally cry mm. in bed. Mm. I would cry in bed because I was like, how am I meant to go to work and mm. face these people every day? Why didn't you just quit? Why, what kept you going in? Part of it was just paralysis. Mm. I was like, I'm stupid. I, I thought, right. that, you know, I conditioned myself to think I was dumb because I was the, the kid. So you thought it was an, the only option for you at, yeah. the, at the time? Dude, I, absolutely. Like, I mean, I was like, well, I'm making um, more money than minimum wage. Mm. Um, what else am I going to do? I was at school with like A's and B's for effort, but I was getting D's and C's for achievement. So mm. I was like, okay, I'm stupid. I'm not going to go and be able to do anything else. And if I did go and do anything else, I'd be taking a pay cut. What did, what did your family think of your the situation you were in? To be honest with you, they didn't even really know a lot of the challenges I was going through till after. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I didn't express it and share it mm -hmm. at the time. I was kind Boys of... Boys don't cry. Don't yeah. Cry. We'll talk about that actually because I do, I do want to talk about masculinity with you as Big well. Time. But let's, let's, let's keep on this. So yeah. you didn't tell your family and you kind of soldiered on. Yeah, and part of it was because I was kind of detached from them mm -hmm. for a point where... I was just so dysfunctional and I had a lot of alcohol problems and drug problems and and I felt like I didn't need them. Mm -hmm. You know, I was like, I knew everything. Sense of pride. Yeah, there was a sense of pride. There was mm -hmm. a sense of like shame mm -hmm. that came with that too. And so I kind of isolated myself in this little echo chamber of my own head where I would just work and drink mm -hmm. and then work and drink. Mm -hmm. And that was it. So. Obviously, in that environment, how, did you have any outlets like other than the alcohol? Like, were there any friends or people around you who you turned to, or did you really kind of battle through on your own? Honestly, like the outlets were all counterproductive. Mm. Um, it was other people with alcohol problems. It was 
um, just going out at night and partying and like looking for fights mm. as well. Like that was a really weird thing that I went through in my life where it was like, I was so in need of like feeling like I was someone mm -hmm. and I was higher in the perceived pecking order than what I felt mm -hmm. that I'd seen other butchers mm -hmm. display it through physical dominance. Mm -hmm. And then I just f must have subconsciously felt like I have to be that way too. Mm -hmm. And that was my existence for a long time. Mm. It was very different, man, to what I'm like now, mm -hmm. you know. Mm. And so talking on the point of masculinity yeah. and kind of, you know, becoming a young man, kind of evolving and finding your place in the world. You know, we live in a society where young men are forced into a certain way of being. Yeah men don't cry, men have these jobs, men look like this, men dress like that. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a real, like, there's a strong conditioning, especially in the Western world, around how men should be. Yeah. Um, it, it has its, um, it, it has its negatives because it also means that men don't feel they can be anything other than that one type of person. Yeah. And ultimately what it does is it kind of doesn't allow young men to flourish in their own individual ways. Yeah. So they kind of turn to alcohol, they turn to violence, they turn to drug abuse, they might turn to sex addictions, things like that, where yeah. they don't have an outlet for their emotions because mm. they've been socialized yeah. into be, you know, rigid with who they are as people. Because, you know, human beings are diverse and beautiful mm. and, and we're all like rainbows, really. But ultimately, when it comes to masculinity, this some people call it toxic max masculinity, yeah, yeah. where there is this strong template that's forced upon you and because yeah. it's forced upon you you become angry and um, isolated within yourself and it actually leads to what i believe a lot of suicide oh in, definitely in, yeah in the uk the single biggest yeah. killer of men under 55 now is suicide yeah Five thousand five hundred young men take their lives every single year that's a rugby team of men every single day and it's it's caused, in my opinion, by these kinds of environments where young men yeah. are not allowed to express who they are mm -hmm. and they're forced into these power structures where they feel powerless and they feel isolated. Do you want to talk a bit about that and, 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 yeah. and in your childhood and, and being yeah. a young man and how that exhibited itself? And yeah, I mean, I think what you said was so true in the sense of these occupations that mm. these, these boys get into, whether it's butchery or slaughterhouses or plumbing or electricians or builders yeah. they all seem to involve this like this wolf pack mm. mentality like it's a pack and there's a hierarchy and there is a lot of addiction involved in those i find in those um occupations and especially in the butchery and um one of the things the weird thing was is i came from a family where we have mental health problems in our family but no one had ever worked in an industry like what I was went into. And um, I just felt like it definitely, having gone through that um, and then discovering veganism, I feel like in a lot of ways, veganism helped me embrace those things about myself that I once thought were like a weakness mm -hmm. even more. Mm -hmm. Because it opens your eyes to the fact that you choosing to stand in a minority when you know it's the right thing to do mm -hmm. it gives you this sense of strength and connection do you think not caring what other people think is almost like 
an antidote to the poison of toxic masculinity? I think so to some extent. I think you have to have a good filter. Like I think that you have to be able to vet people's opinions. Mm -hmm. So often what I'll say to people is look, was there any truth to what this person said? Mm -hmm. If so, can you take something positive mm -hmm. from their words to mm -hmm. make yourself a better person? Mm -hmm. If, it's, if there's nothing valid in what they say, mm -hmm. or you recognize that the filter from which they're saying it mm -hmm. is not something that you value, then you have to be able to let it go and discard it. That you took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because otherwise, otherwise okay. you become a charcoal filter yeah, of energy. Absorbing everyone's stuff. Everyone, and for me being like, a, what I would deem like a highly sensitive person and an INFJ personality type, which is someone who, is essentially like a charcoal filter of emotion if you don't know how to filter it properly. Mm -hmm. And I think and we're not we're not equipped as young men to, not to, to all we're, we're, or even young women. We're not taught. We go to school. We learn maths. We learn trigonometry. Yeah. We learn economics. We might learn science. Yep. But are we taught to communicate with each other? Are we taught to deal with our emotions? And are we taught to be able to yeah. understand who we are as people? Yeah. We're not. There's a lot of logical brained application at school, but there's yeah. not a lot of understanding your emotional body and your emotional yeah. intelligence at all mm. and I think that in and of itself is what kind of made me walk down the path towards being a butcher mm -hmm. because I hadn't learned to, to understand my emotional mm -hmm. intelligence at all so I didn't realize I was walking into a lion's den mm -hmm. of trouble mm. for someone who was already primed for mental health problems mm -hmm. walking into an environment yeah. like that it's like putting jet fuel on a fire mm. you know mm. The butcher environment, obviously, yeah. was something that could, you know, if you look at it from the outside, it's quite a terrifying and kind of quite macabre experience. Morbid, yeah. Morbid, yeah. And, and but it's kind of, there's a part of you that I think you have to desensitize and kind of switch off. Absolutely. Um, how did you do that? Honestly, part of it was, was the alcohol and the partying mm -hmm. and the distraction. Mm -hmm. And I think also part of the desensitizing happens mm -hmm from when you're born. Mm -hmm. When you are brought up in a family that is not vegan, mm -hmm. you get desensitized to um, empathy around other sentient beings from day one. Mm -hmm. Because you're reading about farm animals in a book, but you're eating the farm animals mm -hmm. at the table when you're, a, when you're a child. The disconnect. And so I think that desensitization starts at such a young age that by the time you're of a, a, a age to work, you're so conditioned to see them as food animals mm -hmm. and see like dogs and cats as pet animals mm. that you don't even see it as mm. a moral dilemma yeah at all mm. like for me it was just the food system mm -hmm. it was just the way it was like and you don't question it because as a child you're given this belief system and that's the irony of the world we live in <sighs> yes. people often say to us you're forcing your veganism veganism you're on forcing me. something you're forcing your beliefs on me however they don't realize is that when they're born and they grow up in this world a belief system is, is given to them yeah. you are told and taught that eating consuming animals is normal needed and necessary yeah. and that is a belief that you're given because it's not true and they don't even recognize that the belief system they're placing upon their kids is carnism mm -hmm. they don't even have a they don't even know the term Mm. There is no, like, there's a term that we have for it now. Mm. A lot of people, like, who eat animal products, mm. they won't even know what the term carnism even mm -hmm. means because right. it's so systemic. And as Dr. Melanie Joyce says, it's, a, it's an invisible system yeah. because it's pervasive. It exists in every part of our society. Everything that we consume, 
our clothes, um, our industries, our fashion, makeup, everything, animal products and the use of animals are everywhere. Yeah. In the US alone, $172 trillion is, is, is generated from the animal agriculture industry. Yeah. So you could say that the Western economy is built on the backs of animals and without them, you yeah. know, this world wouldn't exist, this, this society wouldn't exist. Yeah. So with it being such a kind of pervasive system, um, how you know? How did you? How did it connect? Especially being a butcher, like how did you? Because when people think <laughs> vegan, they don't think butcher. No. Like how, like did, how you, did you get there? How did you go from butcher to vegan? Yeah. Activist. It was it was funny, man. Because I feel like when I had the courage, I got to a certain point where I recognized that if I didn't leave the butchery, I would have probably committed suicide. Mm-hmm. It was like that I started recognizing that I was getting to that place. Um, and the, the thing that really made me realize that I'd got to that place was I got into a big argument with my dad. Mm. And in front of him is like this like cry for help slash like just out of, straight out of frustration. I just poured all my medication down my throat at once in mm-hmm. front of him. Yeah. And, um, and it's like, I'll be honest, like I didn't want to die. But I wanted to, it was like this massive cry for help. Yeah. And so once I realized that and I got out of the butchery, mm. I was able to detach myself from a lot of the toxic stuff that was happening in mm. my head on a daily basis. Mm. And I slowly began to heal myself on different levels. And I didn't, it wasn't like a, I planned this. Mm. I just knew what I wanted to kind of feel and I knew that it wasn't that. And so I went back to study at university and I, the psychotherapist that I was, I started seeing, mm-hmm. he really helped me. He suggested that I go work out because mm-hmm. he was like, you know, you're a pressure cooker. Like you've got all this energy that's coming in, but you're not really like expressing it in a way that's productive. You're just internalizing everything. And so I was like, well, do you think working out's going to really help? Like, this is, this is a long time ago. And um, so I went and I started and I really enjoyed it. It was something that I felt good about and I felt like it was something I could control. Mm-hmm. And it gave you the confidence you probably needed in yourself. Yeah, like early on I did it purely for like the confidence reasons. Like I found that like I could look more dominant and that was it was like that attraction and it, sh- it shifted over time. But mm. what I'm getting back to is the fact that that kind of primed my mind mm. to be open to the possibility that I could heal myself from my mental illnesses Mm -hmm. and then as I became that belief became more real to me I with the guidance of my therapist I got off all my medications and this was like 10 years ago now and I've been medication free for years and once I got to that place I was like what else in my life am I living on autopilot with what else in my life what's another belief system in my life like the belief system that I'm this mentally ill person and that's my like that's my life and then I thought to myself what if like the way I'm eating is partly responsible for my mental health problems and what if the type of energy I'm consuming is part of that and I remember coming across a guy called Dr. Will Tuttle Mm -hmm. And World Peace Diet. Oh man, that book is just freaking amazing. And my wife got it and we were reading it and everything he was saying was just making sense to me. Where did the book how did the book appear? Where did you find my it? My wife found it on Amazon. She just stumbled across it. She was yeah. curious about veganism. Mm-hmm. She's she wasn't a 
highly carnivorous person like I was mm -hmm. early on. She was she had a tendency towards veganism from mm -hmm. early on. Mm -hmm. So she was more curious about it and raw diets and things. Mm -hmm. So she started reading that book. Every day we would every week we would drive out to see her grandmother, which is like a 40 minute drive from where we live. Mm -hmm. And she would read that chapters of that book to me in the car while I'm driving. Right. And every time we would read it, I would look forward to hearing it again mm -hmm. because I was like Everything he's saying makes it so beautiful. Mm. Like he was talking about how, like he th he thinks that a lot of the learned behavior in terms of the violence and lack of d regard and c care and concern that we have for other people mm. stems from the fact that we have such a lack of concern for animals. Mm -hmm. So it's a learned behavior that mm. if we're able to do it to other sentient beings who are truly harmless, mm. then of course we're going to be able to do it to other it's, people. It's compassion. It's, you know, human <sighs> beings, some say you know, compassion is a learned trait, but I, as a Buddhist, I believe that yeah. compassion is built into us. It's in our very nature. It's and in you get back DNA. to that. Yeah, it's in our DNA. Yeah. We're born with it as children with these, you know, gentle, innocent, vegan yeah, yeah. <laughs> creatures, yeah. you know, who are who are unassuming, and um, and then we kind of grow up and we're kind of deconditioned. We're kind of deprogrammed. Yeah, you know, if you see any child playing with with an animal, you know, there we are loving creatures. They're not going to bite into. They're going to pet it and. Yeah, talk I mean, to you it may you know the one percent of humanity that's psychopathic may yeah. rip its head off. <laughs> yeah, but that's very uncommon. You yeah, know, human yeah. beings by their nature are compassionate creatures. We want to nourish and nurture and care for. Yeah. But somehow our society has kind of started to reward selfishness, individu yeah. individualism, egotism. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, can we talk a bit about, like, veganism as a movement and, yeah. and its growth? It's exploded yeah. over the last oh. just five years. Yeah. However, there seems to be a few problems with it. So when it comes to the vegan movement, there's two major issues from what I see. For, and, you know they're often kind of seen as challenges, yeah. getting young men involved in mm -hmm. movement, yeah. and also vegans' attitudes towards themselves. Yeah, um, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I've seen that firsthand. I completely know what you're talking about here in the sense that I think a big barrier for a lot of young men to go vegan is part of the indoctrination from such an early age, that hunterman and fishing culture, especially in Louisiana where I live now, there's such a big hunter, hunting and fishing culture that from a very early age, you know, fathers will take their sons out and that's their bonding time. And so men start to associate um, friendship and bonding with these activities that involve animal cruelty. And that's the first thing is they then have to be like, well, am I going to lose all my friends? Mm -hmm. I'm going to lose my circles of friends. I'm going to be isolated. And like, I don't want that. And so like women did, don't necessarily lose all that from the start. And also I think part of it is the, the gym fitness culture that we live in with the, the protein myth. That's another thing I think. And I would say those two things, when you synergize those two together, it just creates a mental block for a lot of men. And also I think part of it is like coming back to what I was talking about with my own mental health. Men, I, I do find typically are raised to, in many ways to suppress their emotional state more. Mm -hmm. So if you're not in touch with your own emotional state at all, mm -hmm. how are you going to be more empathic towards another sentient being? 
when you're not even empathic towards like yourself. Because we're taught that emotion and feeling is a, is is almost a, a weakness. To show and expose emotion yeah, yeah. is a, is is a sign of weakness. That actually yeah. strength, especially in British culture. I don't know what it's like down yeah. down under, but in this country, you know, often. I mean, things are changing, but often like men. There's and still women, a stigma. Yeah, there's yeah. a stoicism of like you must be strong. You don't show emotion. Men don't cry. Men men keep it together. Yeah, and that's kind of you know. Well, I'll give you an example. It. Like you know, a lot of I'll get a lot of messages from guys saying. Like, I can't believe how transparent you are about your mental health past. Mm. Like, you know, I just admire that so much. I've struggled a lot. And I know other guys who will um, put on a brave face mm. for social media and then they'll message me behind closed doors and tell me how much they're struggling. Mm. And I'm like, dude, like you have nothing to be ashamed of. Mm. Like you need to embrace that and mm -hmm. see it as a strength. But they still have that block. And when it comes to vegans being the biggest, I guess, barrier to veganism in a lot of ways is I think that you have people, there's two sort of basic paradigms I see in one is people who are really new to veganism and they have this like newfound gusto for um, you know changing the world and it's, it's good if it's channeled in the right way but they get really frustrated very quickly when they realize that their friends and family don't listen to what they say and they share all these videos and they don't watch them or they watch them and they don't change anything and then they just get angry. Do you feel that people are impatient? They, they don't recognize that they might have taken 20 or 30 years to wake up mm -hmm. to their own vegan journey mm -hmm. and that they want everyone else to wake up as soon as they do. Mm -hmm. And they have to recognize that the reality, the, the sad reality is that some people probably will never wake up. Mm -hmm. And you almost have to detach from that outcome and plant seeds with the hope that whoever is in an emotional state and a consciousness state to, to see that will take it and run with it. And the people who don't, you can't hang on to that, mm. especially when it comes to family and stuff. And I think the other part is this idea that you have to be perfect or you lose the badge. Mm. You know, it's like a, a, a badge. It's all of, or nothing. It's a badge of honor. And if like you don't go all in and, and you have, and if you don't drop all the excuses and you don't get it perfect from day one, then you have no right to call yourself a vegan and that you should get off the train. Mm. And I understand the fact that people want people to like educate themselves and make better informed decisions. Like if you are vegetarian, but you have access to all these plant-based alternatives for dairy and cheese and, and eggs and things, they want people to educate themselves on those options and not just stay in the state where they've learned about meat, but they haven't learned about dairy. But at the same time, Give them information that's going to allow them to bridge the gap rather than just judging them. And I think a lot of vegans will do that. And then they get into these microcosms of are the, are the companies that are making some of these products vegan. Mm. And if they're not vegan, then that product's not vegan. And you get in this like Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole mm. of debate. Mm. And all that happens is, is you have these pre-vegan people come into your ecosystem and they mm. see all these people arguing mm -hmm. about all these the ridiculous nuance. things. And they're yeah. like... I don't want to be like these people. Mm, this is mm, ridiculous. Mm. And you make a small group of people even smaller. Yeah, and, and you, yeah. so you, you, you make it seem very unattainable, very unattainable. And, and you see that with all kinds of products out there, whether it's like 
Daya cheese selling to like a bigger parent company who's non-vegan or with impossible foods with rat tests and all these different things. Mm -hmm. And there's for and against arguments for any of these things. And yeah, I get it, but at the same time, my mentality is results. Yeah. Like what is gonna get someone to not eat that steak yeah. and to eat a plant-based alternative? Mm. That's, the, to me, it, that is the focus. So let me ask you this question. Yeah. Do the needs of the few outweigh the needs of the many? So elaborate. What do so, you? So, so sh if we if we were to sacrifice one person's life to save the whole of humanity, yeah, should we do it? If we were to sacrifice the life of five animals to save a hundred yeah. million animals, yeah. should we do it? Because it's per a moral question. Personally, I would say yes, mm -hmm. but only from the perspective of that what is going to create the most prolific mm -hmm. outcome. Mm -hmm. That if you operate from a moral baseline where you think that. And I get it, like at the same time, I would choose, if I could choose none, mm -hmm. I would clearly choose none. But mm -hmm. if I had to say a hundred million or five, mm -hmm. I would look at the hundred million pairs of eyeballs looking at me mm -hmm. and I would be like, how can I condemn all of them as well? Mm -hmm. And so my whole thing is results, especially being in Louisiana where it's such a, Louisiana is not a vegan friendly state. Mm -hmm. Like we live in a freaking seafood and meat culture down there. Mm -hmm. And so for me to have influence, I have to understand human psychology mm -hmm. and I have to be like the Trojan horse. Mm -hmm. Like I have to get into people's yep. psyche and know how, know how to get beyond that barrier of meat eating mm. that they would normally put up if mm. you told them that they have to be perfect. Mm. And I don't like it. Like my whole goal is they may not be perfect yet, mm. but my intention is to get them there. So you've talked about, which I also use the same analogy, is the matrix. Yeah. And you say how people ask me, what, what did it feel like or how did you like, manage to switch? You know, I often felt when I emerged into this reality. Like your Neo uh -huh. being unplugged. Yeah, I, I was offered two pills. The blue pill was the truth. Yeah. What was really going on and the red pill was obviously yeah. denial yeah. and going back to sleep going back into the, the world that was kind of presented to me. And I think it's such a great analogy because it does symbolize these two paths ahead of us. Mm. And we have a choice. Every single day when we sit down to choose, well, to eat, we, vote. we decide whether to choose kindness or to choose cruelty. Yeah. Because it doesn't matter what people say, oh, I buy organic or I buy local or like I buy humane from a butcher or range. I buy humane. It is a myth, it is a hoax, yeah. it is a lie. Yeah. We tell ourselves these stories yeah every time we buy meat because we think the animal had a nice life. Yeah. It, you know, there's this story, this narrative that runs through our head and yeah. this is what the matrix, the idea of the matrix, the concept of the matrix is. Yeah. A fabricated world of lies and deception yeah. that run through every fabric of our society. And it's not just animal agriculture. No. It's, it's humans, it's slavery with human beings, it's technology, it's, it's abuse yeah. in fashion. That's one of the things I noticed when I went vegan is that your whole paradigm around religion and politics and humanity and race and sexual orientation, all those things evolve and change. Mm. All of a sudden, a lot of those barriers melt away, mm. like where people consider themselves, you know, a Christian or mm. a, a, a Republican, mm -hmm. it tends to melt away. Mm. And I find that you become a lot more empathic towards different viewpoints. Well, not necessarily. It's the compassion. Your yes. heart opens. Exactly, man. Yeah. yeah. And you expand, you evolve, <laughs> which, is a, which is a word that features in your um, 
yeah. in your business? The whole, evolving alpha, why evolving alpha? The, the, that's a great question. Like, and a lot of people ask that. You know, like the whole premise behind evolving alpha was we came, we we really rattled around with a lot of different concepts and. Part of it was because I come from a butchery mm -hmm. and I come from an industry that is deemed as like where alpha, you know, alpha masculinity exists mm -hmm. and hyper masculinity exists and also mainstream society would have us believe that the alpha male is a hunter mm -hmm. and a fisherman mm -hmm. and, or, you know, a big burly guy and who he was a steak and he was and, that's, and part of that was the truth. Mm. And so part of that is evolving what mm -hmm. the term alpha even means. Mm -hmm. And that alpha really means Same. like strength through compassion mm -hmm. and choosing a minority, being conf confident enough in yourself mm. and in your own body to mm. know that if you can, even if you stand in a minority mm -hmm. and you stand against what most people are doing and saying, mm. because you know it's right. Because isn't it funny, we're all, you know, there's all these comebacks that people have for us and one of my favorites is cavemen though. Yeah. We've always Hashtag. done it. We've always, we've always killed animals. Like, we've always hunted. Yeah. Well, you know, there's, there was slavery for a long time. Yeah. We've always m killed and murdered each other. And, and like raped and all sorts of stuff. We've, we've done a lot of things in our uh, history that we shouldn't be proud of. No. You know, human beings have the capacity, thankfully, to shift evolve. and evolve and change. Yeah. Um, there's a, it's a long road. Yeah. This, this journey. Yeah. Do you see a time where we will, there'll be no animal agriculture and that, that the all sort of animal yeah. aggression will end? I, I think it'll come a point where the sustainability of it will, people will recognize that it's truly unsustainable. Mm. Like, yeah. I would like it, liken it to like a coal powered factory versus solar and wind energy, mm -hmm. where eventually we're going to run out of fossil fuels to burn and we're going to destroy the environment and climate change is going to destroy us mm. unless we adopt clean renewable energy mm. and i think that a plant-based alternative system if done right is that clean alternative energy in the animal agriculture system is the coal mm. and there will come a time where they recognize that the emissions and the pollution and the waste byproducts and the harm mm. and the system is just so engineered for unproductivity mm. because when you think about how much grain is, is needed to grow to feed these animals to slaughter you could feed every person on the planet do you think it's too late though 50 percent of the rivers in the united states are now completely sterile yeah. half the ancient forests have been cut down yeah. 50 to 60 percent of all the wild animals on our planet are yeah. gone we're losing 200 species every yeah. single day those numbers are horrible humanity yeah. is like a runaway train yeah. and some have likened us to a parasite like not a virus in the matrix you know we are <laughs> you know we are not intrinsically parasites yeah. but our behavior is parasitic yeah, you yeah. know some you know Celeste Rao talks about it and uh, i often say humanity is like a caterpillar yeah on the leaf, high up in the tree, looking yeah. out, minding its own business, munching away on that leaf. And then the leaf's gonna give way because there's no leaf left. Right, not realizing that it's just consuming the entire leaf yeah. without any kind of, without any kind of realization of consequence. However, like the caterpillar, and this is, you know, you might think this is a, a twee comparison, but humans are a lot like the caterpillar because we can become butterflies. We yeah. can transform and become more than what we were yesterday, a year before, yeah. two years before. Yeah. Do you think there's any hope for us as a species? I like to think there is just because I want to be an optimist, even yeah. though like I can have cynical tendencies. Like mm. I've, I've found a lot of my mental health journey was for choosing optimism mm. and hoping. Mm. And that with the idea that 
if someone like me can make the connection, then anyone can, but also recognizing that as a collective, like you were saying, cavemen though, like if we have the ability to like evolve as mm. a species and mm -hmm. create technology and do all these amazing things that we've done, I do think there comes a point where we, at least we have the comprehension of what's happening. Mm -hmm. But the, the crazy part is that I feel like humans as a species will try and do everything in their power to still consume animal products while doing all these other things. So like they'll send colonies to Mars and they'll jettison the garbage into space mm. and they will like do all these things mm. to try and still keep mm. the paradigm intact until right. the truth, until the full on collapse of it where they recognize that it's just not. And I mean, I don't even know what that will look like. That's mm. something out of the matrix. Mm. That's like so that's like when the matrix collapsed. That's something that yeah. I can't even almost visualize. As, as, a, as a father, though, you're now a dad. You and Lauren yeah. have had a beautiful baby girl. Thank you, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. And congratulations yeah. to you. Thank you. It's been a, it's, a long and painful road, I know. It's amazing. It's uh, but it's a beautiful, yeah. beautiful kind of becoming a new life in this world. Yeah. As a father, do you feel a sense of kind of pressure or responsibility yeah. because your baby girl is, is, has emerged into this world yeah, in, yeah. In, in the state that it's in, do you feel? Yeah, I feel, I definitely feel like a sense of duty to try and equip her with the, the highest level of consciousness mm -hmm. that she can have. Mm. So she's in a position where she can inspire change mm. on a prolific level. Mm. Um, you know, like I think all parents want that for their children, but a lot of them don't really recognize what high level consciousness even looks like because mm -hmm. a lot of them aren't vegan yet. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's like instilling these values into her and not forcing them upon her, but in the sense of guiding her to them through us inspiring her and seeing that we live this way because it's a choice that we're proud of mm -hmm. and hoping that she adopts that and then runs with that and then chooses to like do something mm. beautiful with it because mm. I, I do think that the the good thing the beauty about our generation with, with children coming up now is that there's so many young vegans who are born vegan mm. they're born already with a high degree of compassion and consciousness to begin with mm -hmm. and so I'm hoping that those people will have greater influence whether it's in politics mm. or whether it's in businesses or startups creating alternatives or clean energy or different food alternatives. Like they'll actually be the proactive citizens in society who have the big startups, mm. who, who are in politics and who are steering humanity in a better direction. Mm. When it comes to your lifestyle, you're yeah. involved in fitness yeah, and gym yeah, and it's yeah. a big part of who you are. You're an advocate and a yeah. fitness influencer. How, tell me about that and how that kind of feels to be someone who, who you know, has a lot of people look up to you and, yeah. and, and you've influenced to transform their bodies, their mental health. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I often, it's funny because I was talking to the guys from um, Eating Our Way to Extinction who I was filming their documentary mm. with yesterday about what I saw in the, in the butchery and I was telling them that a lot of my approach is like a Trojan horse. So... The, the shell, what you see, the muscles and the, the weight lifting mm -hmm. is the way to get into a lot of fitness people's heads. Mm. And then once I'm in there, I, f I, I, I connect with them on a level of, I figure out where they're at. Mm. Like where are they at emotionally? Where are they at with their motivations? And I will try and then drill down on those motivations to then basically help them bridge the gap 
And I do find that what I have found being in the fitness industry is it is a benefit being vegan and lifting weights and being a little bit bigger and stuff in terms of a certain type of person that you want to reach. They're like the fitness gym junkies and things. So I'll go into my gym in Louisiana and I do have a lot of people who will ask me questions and a lot of people who message me once they see me at the gym. Do you think people are naturally curious? Because obviously you are probably yeah. wear a lot of vegan paraphernalia. Yeah. And so people look at you and go, are you really vegan? They're <laughs> very, they're very curious. And like, yeah. I, I, I love that, you know, like a lot of people are like, oh man, I'm so tired of people asking me, where do I get my protein? Dude, mm. I love those questions. Because mm. I'm like, that shows me that someone's curious. Mm -hmm. Like if they're not asking those questions, then you should be concerned. Mm -hmm. But the fact that I'm getting these big guys coming to me at the gym and they're asking me about like, protein and things that to me are just common knowledge now but i recognize that to them that's the barrier stopping them and um i do think that i see a lot more fitness people especially with my finger on the pulse of like vegan plant-based nutrition there's a lot of fitness people starting to go vegan mm -hmm. and i think whether whatever their motivation is i mean some people do it once they watch what the health mm -hmm. some people do it because they watched earthlings or cowspiracy um my whole thing is whatever motivates you to remove animals from your plate and keep them off, do it. And um, so I get, I see a lot of fitness people will come to me. You know, even some of the IFBB pros who are like pro bodybuilders will message me and say like, I, I really want to go vegan, but I'm super scared. Because mm. um, you know, like I'm worried, I'm, I'm meant to do a show. And how am I going to do it? And what are people's biggest fears? They're just like that. They're not going to be in the same condition. Mm -hmm. That it, part of it is a, a, a bit of a self-serving fear, like in mm -hmm. the sense that they they're worried they're going to lose their muscle mass, mm -hmm. and they're going to look soft or fat or whatever. Is there, there's a lot of fear around carbohydrate and the sense that yeah. you know plant protein <laughs> and fruit and comes along with a lot of carbohydrates, like so chickpeas and lentils yes, and beans. But if you're consuming a high protein vegan diet, that it's going to come with a whole lot of calories that you don't really want yeah and you know like what I say to people is that one if you think about the 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 packaging that comes with animal waste protein you're getting a lot of other things like methionine IGF-1 a lot of things that will stimulate cancer growth mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you know cell signaling cell signaling which basically signals growth on any cell not just like muscle mm -hmm. and um and you know cholesterol and all these other things and saturated fat so one, it's the packaging of what comes with the protein, but also I t tell them about micronutrients. So like, I'm like, you realize that these chickpeas or these lentils or these other things come with a lot of other micronutrients mm. that can help with improving your digestion, mm -hmm. improving your immune function, so you recover better, mm -hmm. so you sleep better. Mm -hmm. Less so, inflammation. Yeah, so like I tie it all into this big picture of mm. recovery, sleep, less inflammation, better hormone profiles, mm. better gains. Mm. More fertile. But, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, and all those things because of that. And then that starts making sense to them when mm. I tell them that. And then the, the, the thing, I like to keep it simple in the sense that I'm like, just focus on total calories first like most people will get way too caught up in macro splits and I'm like to be honest with you I don't count macros I don't even count calories I haven't for years mm -hmm. it's all intuitive mm -hmm. but a lot of people aren't there yet but I'm I say to them just focus on total calories mm -hmm. eat like eat, eat a diverse range of plant proteins so whether it's lentils tempeh tofu chickpeas mm -hmm. beans legumes hemp seed whatever yeah. mix it all up experiment 
But if you want to keep your body in check, just keep your total calories in check and that's yeah. it. Because that's the mistake a lot of people make, when even not necessarily bodybuilders, yeah. is when they go to a plant-based diet, they eat the same volume as they did before. Yeah. You actually need to eat double the volume. Yeah, because you've got the fiber. Right, and, and plant protein, sorry, plant, you know, plant foods yeah. aren't as nutrient dense, or not nutrient dense, aren't as calorie dense yeah, yeah, yeah. as animal products. And that's why what you'll find for a lot of people is they say they came to veganism and they felt really weak and tired. Mm. And my whole thing is you probably inadvertently got into such a steep calorie deficit mm. because you were eating volumes mm. of food, mm -hmm. it wasn't as many calories, your total calorie intake dropped so much mm. that you literally, when you drop your calorie intake rapidly like that, mm. you're going to feel lethargic and tired mm. no matter what diet you're on. And probably not eating enough protein. No, you know, just not enough. Like you can't live on potatoes and Oreos. Yeah. Like people... And it could be partly is because they're consuming like too much of a vegan junk food diet. Mm. Like just mm. because something's vegan doesn't mean that right. it's healthy. Which is going to have a lot of processed hydrogenated oils yeah. and, and that's equally sugar and bad. salt and yeah. everything else in between. So there's an upcoming film, Eating Away to Extinction, by two amazing young filmmakers, Otto and Ludo. Yeah. Um, they are kind of charting um, the future, well, charting out the future of humanity based on what we consume. You are featured in this film. Do you want to talk us through a little bit about what your role is in the film? Yeah, so I was fortunate enough to come from America to, to London, where I'm speaking with you right now, and then went down to Brighton yesterday where they were filming. And the whole thing was they wanted former butchers who are now vegan to share their truth about what they experienced in that industry. Because very often what you'll find online is people will share videos of meat with cysts and tumors mm. and pus and mm -hmm. things. And you'll have a lot of people argue that that's fake or mm. that just happens, it's an anomaly, it doesn't mm. happen often, mm. my butcher doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. There's all these rebuttals against these videos that mm. people post. But hearing it firsthand from someone who did it, mm. who saw it on mm. a daily basis, mm. is different because someone can't tell me my experience is wrong. Mm -hmm. And I'm not here to exaggerate it either. Mm -hmm. uh, mm. Because the thing is, is I know it's severe enough mm. telling the truth. I don't mm. need to like make it to make it more grand. Mm. Um, and so I shared my experience as a former butcher when I was in that industry and the amount of carcasses and I don't even like to use the word carcass anymore it's like a dead body but mm. the amount of carcasses that came through our butchery and we would be running them through the bandsaw for for chops mm. or we would be breaking them down mm -hmm. and, and slicing them up for different cuts of meat mm. and we would hit pockets of cysts mm. and abscesses and mm. things mm. and so some of these were sh like the size of a golf ball even some might have been almost the size of tennis balls mm. And they were big. And if you were hit one on a bandsaw, for example, it would burst and it would just go all over the mm. bandsaw platform. Mm. And it was some of them would be sort of a gray green color, mm -hmm. really nasty. And, and what um, and what is what is this? So what so is. basically, like uh, the cysts or these pockets of infections mm. typically come from abuse or neglect mm. or mal practice mm. where they've had some form of trauma mm -hmm. done to their body and it's created some kind of infection mm -hmm. and then you can tell with the coloration of it that the infection is literally almost rotting mm. and um, we would hit these pockets of infections and cysts and there was no heart cleanup hygiene protocol for this like it wasn't like hit the sterilized button and mm -hmm. like get the contamination suits on mm -hmm. and sterilize the whole butchery. It was like I had a dirty rag that I would use to wipe the bone dust off the bandsaw, mm -hmm. get that dirty rag and wipe the pus mm -hmm. and the cysts off the, off the 
bench mm-hmm. and then keep processing. Mm. And so the blade's got goop all over it. But the meat will be washed with like chlorine or something, wouldn't it? No, wouldn't not it? at all. Really? No, that that is the craziest part is that mm. the where the cyst was, mm. we might cut that piece out and throw that in the, the bin for rendering, mm. for mm. pet food. Yeah. But all the meat around it and the stuff that was then in contact with the bench mm-hmm. after mm. would just go just straight up to the packers to be processed and oh. put out on the... And so like if there was any... So there's no sterilization. There's not zero sterilization at all. There was no mm-hmm. applying sanitizer or anything mm. to any of that. Mm. And so people might say, well, my meat looked fine. Well, you could have had something one of those cysts could have burst and then your meat came along after that and mm. it's touching these surfaces that are mm. contaminated. Mm. That happened every day, mm. every day. Mm. And there'd be days, and I worked on a high volume butchery, so I saw a lot, we saw a lot of mm. animals come through. Mm-hmm. And even when I was contracted in these smaller butcheries where they had less volume, I would still see that mm. on, a, on a lesser scale because they had less. Mm. Um, we'd be breaking down you know, the, the bodies and we would hit these pockets of, of different things. Mm. And that was the that was one part that we shared in the documentary about how most people don't even recognize that there's no decontamination protocol, there is no hygiene protocols. Mm-hmm. They're eating bacteria-covered mm-hmm. meat mm-hmm. In, in every sense of the word. Mm-hmm. And um, the other practices were with the mince or the ground meat that we would throw old cuts and old mince and, or ground meat that literally the odor would would be enough to tell you that it was had expired mm. and the color was off mm. and we would throw that in with the fresh stuff and we would add enough fresh stuff to hide the smell and the color mm. and we would keep doing that every day part of my process as an apprenticeship was to make all the ground beef mm-hmm. and so i would take all the old packets that were and they didn't sell that were discolored and starting to smell and I would throw it in with the new and I would just keep that rotation mm. going. So we never actually discarded any product at all. It was all about increased profitability mm. and reducing down as much like profit loss as possible. It's not a healthcare industry, it's a mm. profit industry. Mm-hmm. And so that would, and not only did we do that with the, the ground beef, but we would throw um, like lamb fat, pig fat, pig, pig's lymph nodes, mm. um, like just tendons and ligaments into the lower grade ground beef mm-hmm. to increase the to yield, bulk it out. to bulk it out mm-hmm. so we could sell more of it. And that was a daily, that was a daily practice, mm-hmm. pa- hundreds and hundreds of pounds of it. And Are you aware if that, if that kind of thing is, is kind of prevalent anywhere else in the world? We, well, I was fortunate enough that in this documentary that there was a butcher called Doug Moore who worked in a slaughterhouse as well. He was there too. I know Doug, yeah. Yeah, and he, confirmed what I was telling saying mm. that happens in the UK mm. happens in New Zealand mm. and I can tell you knowing that how New Zealand prides itself on higher standards mm-hmm. of practice I cringe to think what happens in places like America mm-hmm. where like everything's mechanized mm. and it's just it seems like there is no like base, moral baseline with many things mm-hmm. and so it's all just about profit yeah big time and so like america i would think would be worse than what i'm explaining mm. but he confirmed that what i was saying and happened in new zealand he confirmed that that happens here too mm. in the uk and mm-hmm. the last thing would be that he also confirmed was the old cuts of meat that were almost rotten basically would get marinated mm. in these really strong marinade like a teriyaki chinese mm. type marinade that would be so strong to hide that it would hide the smell and odor and color mm. and then they would sell it as barbecue steak wow. and so pe- and people are buying these things and they're getting food poisoning or for you know whatever 
Well, speaking of speaking on the point of bacteria, and a lot yeah. of people don't really learn much about these little. <laughs> yeah. you, are they beings? I guess, I guess they are. Yeah, I um, guess you know you these 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 entities that exist yeah. in us, on us, and yeah. every surface on the earth. There are w the ones that exist within us that are essential for our health. They gut keep biome. us, yeah they, yeah, they keep us running. Many people are now calling the gut the second brain. Yeah, uh, some 70, 80 percent of our, our serotonin is produced in our gut. Yeah, um, so there's an interesting potential link between diet and mental health. Yeah, that if we're eating meat and animal, you know, a diet high in animal protein and products we are creating an environment in our gut which is not really beneficial for good mental health. Yeah. Um, but then there's the negative side, the bad bacteria, things like ML MRSA, which are superbugs, which are essentially mutating on factory farms mm. where animals yeah. are pumped full of antibiotics on a daily basis. Some 60% of all the Anti uh, antibiotics that are used in this country go into factory farmed animals. Antibiotic resistant. Yeah, bacteria. and these, you know, I made I made a film last year or two years ago with my good friend Damien Clarkson called Swine. Which I you saw that. It was really good. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> which you can watch on YouTube, and yeah. you know, we talked about this really dangerous and terrifying monster that we are breeding on mm -hmm. these farms. Yeah. These animals are packed into tightly confined environments. They can't move. They they live and walk in their own feces and urine on a daily basis and so to counter that disease and dirt the farmers use antibiotics huge amounts of antibiotics to almost illegal levels one thing a lot of people don't know is that antibiotics also promote growth in animals mm. the more antibiotics you give an animal the faster it grows yeah. and the more eggs it lays and the more fat and the more flesh it grows it so it has this effect on animals metabolism so there's a lot of like skullduggery going on by farmers in this and it's outlawed. You're not allowed to give animals antibiotics for growth, yeah. but they use them under the, gu the guise of disease prevention. Mm. However, there is a potential solution to all of this. Cultured meat, yeah. you know, flesh that is grown by human beings mm. in a lab. Yeah. They call it clean meat because yeah. there's no antibiotics. There's no MRSA, there's no dirt, there's no, it's cleanly produced yeah. by people. All you need is a few cells and you can grow anything. Yeah. Like you, hell, you could grow human flesh if you wanted to, if yeah. you eat it. You could grow anything from an animal. What are your thoughts on the whole cellular agriculture? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, it's, it's a funny one, man, because I think definitely from a moral perspective, um, if it enables us to remove the sentient being mm -hmm. aspect from mm -hmm. the equation, yeah. And it helps us from an environmental perspective then I think it's a good thing mm -hmm. I think that if someone's going to want to do that but it removes the equation of like sentient being harm mm -hmm. then I think that it's something that we should definitely pursue mm -hmm. from a health perspective mm -hmm. I would then say is it still creating the same environments of disease potentially in humans yeah with saturated fat and cholesterol and different mm. things like that is it still proliferating those types of diseases if so that's another story mm -hmm. like that's a whole other thing like in terms of healthcare and taxpayers money mm. for healthcare and mm -hmm. things but i think from my perspective and what i say to people is like i wouldn't consume it but it doesn't mean that it's not something that's worth pursuing from a perspective that if it helps people remove factory farms and mm -hmm. the excrement mm -hmm. runoff mm -hmm. that destroys habitats mm -hmm. and rivers mm -hmm. all across the United States mm -hmm. and it puts it to a lab setting then I think that's something that people should consider mm -hmm. but at the same time I'm one of those people that 
I almost like, proceed with caution. I almost yeah, like I, I almost have like a sense of polarity within myself where I can see arguments on both sides, mm. and very often I'm not even sure what the truth is. Mm. I'm not even sure, really sure what the way to proceed is. But like you were saying, proceed with caution because again, you could it could be something another monster in and of itself. What's interesting about the people driving the cellular agriculture movement is a lot of them are vegans. They're like. A, scientists and um, nutritional technologists yeah. who are vegans who are really they're they're being pragmatic they are suggesting that you know there are because it's not currently vegan yeah. to grow to grow um, flesh in a, in, a, in a scientific environment you need bovine fetal serum so you have to take which is the serum that comes from um, an animal that's just given birth basically it doesn't have to be a bovine but it can be any kind of like animal uh, quite a large animal because you need quite a lot of it yeah. it's worth some six hundred dollars per hundred mil so it's actually quite a lot of money but there are potentials to produce these uh, substances with plants mm. and grow flesh with plants yeah so once the ethical side of it has been completely yeah. aligned there will be no stopping it and we will be able to grow flesh of any sort. What's very interesting is that we can also dial down the saturated fat levels. Ah. We can focus on the cells that produce yeah. muscular tissue and reduce the levels of fat because a lot of these animals that are farmed in this way are given foods that are not natural for them. Yeah. Corn, for example. Cows Grains do not naturally eat corn yeah. and so they come out very fat, a lot of fat on yeah. in, their, in their flesh. So this, this, the, this, these products will potentially be very lean yeah. and potentially very healthy for people healthy as for healthier if you could say I'm one of I'm of the frame of thought that you have in pragmatism around like what's going to get the result mm -hmm. even if like I don't necessarily like it mm. like I'd set my ego aside mm. and I think in terms of like what is practical and what is going to get people a step closer mm. to reducing what they're doing mm. even if it's not something that I would partake in yeah it is it's it's a short-term solution because yeah. i think the plant-based products will continue to evolve oh and definitely yeah you know impossible burger beyond burger you know in this in the in europe we've got vivera which has got there they've got like 12 different products which are flying off the shelves yeah i heard so Tes yeah. tesco's sold fifty thousand. i heard they sell steaks. out too they completely sell out <laughs> tesco sold fifty thousand vegan steaks in the first day in the that's first day insane. that's so cool um, so and they cool. can't actually keep up with the demand and because it's and it's not vegans who are buying them It's meat reducers. Yeah people yeah. who call themselves flexitarians who are aware of the in, on incoming environmental catastrophe. Yeah are Making the conscious choice to cut down or cut out meat. Well, that's like um, in America yeah. I got connected with this big supermarket chain called Winn-Dixie mm -hmm. and they're like Tesco they're a big chain and they got me on board now to help them with their vegan sets and I one of the things I pitched to them was I said you do realize that the people predominantly the people who buy your non-dairy alternatives and your plant-based meat alternatives and stuff and cheese alternatives aren't even vegans no they're not yeah. and so when I said that to them because they were thinking that oh the market's going to be so small mm -hmm. and I said you do realize that they're like a massive portion of the population are like now non-dairy. Want to eat better, yeah. And so you're catering to that whole portion of people. And when mm. I said that, I could see like a light bulb go off in their head. Mm. And that gave me so much leverage to mm. then now bring in all these different plant-based products into these stores mm. that coin themselves the beef people. Mm. We have to think outside the box if we're going to make real change. Yeah. And I think this is why things are changing so quickly because more you know, men and women are coming into this in this movement and they're thinking strategically. They're putting their emotions aside. 
they're putting their pride and their egos aside and they're saying, right, let's yeah. think strategically. Let's be the Trojan horse. Yeah. Let's be the blue pill because that yeah. is what will change that's the effect, world. That's what's effective. Yeah, let's be effective. Lots and let's not be emotional. Yes, emotion is what drive us. Anger, um, frustration, all these emotions you are what keep us. You have to be able to channel it. Exactly. Yeah. So. On that note, thank you, Mr. Fraser Reddy, for joining us it on was the PBM pleasure, podcast. Man. It's we could have talked for hours. We could. There's so much talk to <laughs> talk about. Well, yeah. obviously, I'd love to have you on again. Oh, it was yeah. such a pleasure, man. I'll come you. to the US and visit you. For sure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, man. Thank Absolute you pleasure. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. This has been the PBN podcast. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll be talking about more veganism, health, nutrition, and everything in between. 